In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Skeptics shave away possibilities. They use Oakham's razor. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Paratopians aren't liars. We're outliers. Anything goes with Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Hey, Paratopia, it's Jeff Ritzman and Jeremy Bainey with yeah. you again on Friday night. Yeah. And tonight, dare I say, Jeremy, another fantabulous show. Yes, we got, uh, we, we've got um, a doctor. Is there a doctor in the house? There is a doctor in the house. It's Dr. Richard F. Haynes oh with my us God. tonight from NARCAP. Now, I, I feel like um, he's probably got like one or two things on his resume. Why don't you... Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Why don't you let us know what's uh, what's in his background so we we get a handle on just the quality of guests that we have on this show? I'm going to read this very slowly. Richard F. Haynes was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, and attended the University of Washington College of Engineering and Pacific Lutheran College in Tacoma, where he received the BA degree in 1960. He was awarded the M.A. and Ph.D. from Michigan State University in East Lansing in 1962 and 1964, respectively, in the field of experimental psychology. After working at NASA Ames from 1967 to 1986 as a research scientist in numerous aeronautical projects, uh, he was appointed chief of Space Human Factors Office at NASA Ames in 1986-1988, where he directed Research and development of the AX-5 hard EVA spacesuit, habitability design research for space station freedom, and spacecraft window design. He retired from government service in 1988 and taught at San Jose State University as an associate professor of psychology while working part-time as a scientist in the Research Institute for Advanced Computer Science. From 1990 to 91, he has provided consulting services to NASA in various laboratory activities related to supersonic wind tunnel automation redesign and space station freedom to ground bandwidth image transmission reduction. His interest in UFO phenomena spans over 20 years with special interest in sightings by pilots, analysis of photographic evidence, and data on close encounters of the fourth kind. He claims that, quote, these three areas contain the type of data that will bring us to a successful discovery of the core nature of the phenomenon. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Richard Haynes. Dr. Richard Haynes, thank you for coming on the show. That's my, my pleasure. Uh, let, let's get right to this here. You know, looking at the, the NARCAP website um, and speaking to uh, my pal Ted Rowe, it looks as though you're, okay, you're collecting data on sort of unidentified uh, aerial phenomena. To what end? For I, I know it's for 
um, aviation safety. But what actually happens to that data? What is the process of, of um, accumulating that data? What, what goes on after that? To answer that, let me step back just very briefly and tell you that NARCAP, being about 10 years old now, we set out with the original objectives of two things, to help improve aviation safety, as you just said, at the same time to collect credible scientific data that we could take to the science community to get them interested um, in this range of phenomena that we don't understand very well, but which impacts flight safety. Now, given that as background, in the 10 years since NARCAP has been uh, in business, so to speak, we've done a lot of good work, and we have tried our best to to interact, let's say, with the FAA, with aerospace and aeronautical organizations that are very concerned with safety, and we have found the doors closed. And so it's a little discouraging uh, because we are all on the same team, but for some reason the initials UAP or UFO just turns them off. And uh, it's it's almost an irrational kind of a, a response they have. So it doesn't matter how many letters you have behind your name, they still don't even want to hear this? No, that's right. That's right. Uh, so, okay, given that, 10 years later, what is the function of NARCAP? Well, uh, we're continuing to stay the course, as our former president used to say. Um, we're not going to give up. Uh, we would like to be proactive in the sense of pro, uh, of preventing an accident with a UAP before it happens. And if uh, that's not a reactive approach, uh, which is the way much of aviation is these days. We often wait until an accident happens and then respond, put new rules into place or new training requirements or whatever, new stipulations by the FAA. I don't think that's the right way to go. Um, that we know enough about this phenomenon, and that's plural, by the way, that's not a singular term, mm -hmm. that's a range of phenomena, that we can, we NARCAP, can work with the airlines, for instance, to help them develop training procedures in their simulators during what is called recurrency training. But at the same time, we can encourage our government to change their reporting forms and procedures to encourage pilots to make reports when, in fact, they're not doing so now. Hmm. Well, you, you said it's phenomena plural, so what, what would be the basic categories that you've discovered? Well, a number of them. Uh, very early on, uh, we've discovered that there's uh, a range of electromagnetic effects um, that can be associated with the phenomena, which can influence avionic systems, uh, navigation systems, radio systems, radar uh, onboard uh, control systems and so forth. There's a second category <clears throat> which I would call um, aerodynamic in the sense of air turbulence that would influence how the air, the, the pilot might fly his airplane. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on how far the phenomenon is away and where it is relative to the airplane and so forth. There's a third category which I think is more psychological and it's the distraction effect the influence on cockpit 
um, resources and cockpit management, uh, decision-making in the cockpit when, uh, in some cases, the pilots are so captivated by what's nearby the airplane at 30,000 feet altitude, they don't continue their normal uh, instrument panel scans. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not a good idea, you see. So those are three basic categories we talk about. Hmm. And as far as just sort of having objects in the air that don't, that shouldn't be there, or uh, something along those lines, I mean, does that is that appealing to anyone? Uh, you know, that, that you speak to in scientific or political circles that for just for national security reasons. You know, I don't know. That, that's a good question, and I can't answer that. You know, what the reason is, uh, I can say that uh, a number of my professional colleagues are very interested on a personal level, mm-hmm. um, perhaps on a curiosity level, but for various reasons, they feel that they just can't get officially involved. Hmm. And do they, I mean, you don't, I guess you don't have to tell us but, uh, what they are, but do they tell you what those reasons are? Well, some of them do, but I'm afraid I can't share them. Uh, that might disclose too much right. of their own background. Okay. And in terms of the actual uh, phenomena out there, outside of the craft, uh, are there categories of things that, that you see this falling into? You know, well, I won't even ask. I'll, I'll just ask generally. What, what do you think <laughs> the categories are? Because I know, uh, I think Ted Rowe had told me that there was a, a NASA... Uh, study on plasma phenomena, but I might be getting that wrong, uh, that, that you had determined that there was some sort of plasma phenomenon out there. So you are familiar with plasma? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let me say it this way. Um, that's a great question. Uh, during daylight hours, the phenomenon very often will assume a metallic appearance. Uh, in other words, a solid-appearing, metallic, three-dimensional object with sharply defined edges. Uh, sometimes they're aeriforms or not, and other times they're not, uh, in terms of lifting, you know what an aeriform is. Um, but at night, um, and the majority of sightings are at night, by the way. The statistics are showing roughly 70% after dark and 30% during daytime. Mm-hmm. The nighttime event, uh, phenomena are almost always self-luminous. Either the entire surface is luminous or there are individual light sources on that surface uh, which make it visible. So what are we actually talking about here? Are we talking about craft? Are we talking about some other life form? What what would that (laughs) be? You you want to jump right to the conclusion, don't you? Well, I just want to, I just want to know what, what you're thinking of. I don't know how in depth you're gonna you're willing to go with me on this, on these questions. So I'm testing. Well, you're gonna find out. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, well, I have to be honest with you. I've been studying this subject for about forty years now, and it is a mystery. And it remains a mystery after a lot of very bright people have been looking at it, and uh, some degree of scientific competence has been looking at it, although not nearly as much as should be. You use the word craft. I still want to stay with the term UAP, mm-hmm. Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Why? Because that, for me as a scientist, that leaves the door open. That gives me some wiggle room, right? Right. Um, I'm not about to be forced into this continuum of belief to one end or the other, a a true believer or whatever, or a total skeptic. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I find that that's unacceptable from a, a, a good, solid scientific point of view. So I like to leave that door open, and, and UAP does that for me, you see. Now, I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not going to answer your question. Right, but okay, so, <laughs> but when we talk about plasma in the sky, are we talking about, a, I guess my question is, um, are you open to the idea of a life form uh, in and of itself as opposed to a life form inside of a craft is that one of the possibilities uh, for you i'm not sure i understand your word life or light life oh life form oh boy that's you know if you go that far you open up an awfully big pandora's box um right away and it just complicates it's not you know what occam's razor is in science yes. Mm-hmm. the sense of going for the simplest explanation you can. That's certainly not Occam's razor. That's jumping three or four levels of complexity. It's kind of like explaining one mystery with another. Um, and I don't like to do that, frankly. Right. I guess I'm kind of an empiricist. Uh, but as far as plasma is concerned, we don't really understand plasma very well. Uh, physics has been grappling with that for you know, decades now. And some labs are doing some really credible work uh, with contained plasmas and magnetic field containment and so forth. Um, And we're learning some very interesting things about plasma. I don't claim to be an expert at all myself. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I just try to follow the scientific American level of of, uh, presentation. But NARCAP does have an interesting and large number of pretty qualified people in different specialties that volunteer their time so that we can do credible field studies uh, when a case comes in. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, uh, even if you're, you're not accepted uh, by other scientists or what have you, is the organization accepted by the aviation community itself? In other words, do they know in, en masse that you're there for them, and do they feel comfortable stepping forward to you? Well, to be honest, I would say no. Um, And I don't know whether it's deliberate or just just an oversight or what, but they're very busy. We understand that. Uh, They're trying to do their job and keep businesses rolling and profits coming in and, you know, accidents from happening and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it could be that we're down in the noise level. Um, But having said that, uh, I think your listeners need to know that Bird strikes, uh, airplanes running into birds, as happened over the Hudson River recently, uh, happen, well, with a low frequency, but they do happen. Uh, lightning strikes at altitude occur very infrequently, but they do happen. Uh, wind shear, you know what wind shear is? Yes. Okay, well, wind shear doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Well, uh, and the FAA, um, historically speaking, has taken those three kinds of events very seriously and implemented uh, various procedures and requirements and reporting and so forth uh, to try to even further reduce their incidents or the, the consequences of their incidents, all right? Lots of, of technology and money has been spent. I can tell you that from our own research and statistical analyses, the probability of a pilot, a commercial pilot now, having a UAP encounter is about the same level of probability. And yet the FAA is not taking it seriously. Hmm. And so there's something else going on here. Have you identified any sort of UAP hotspots? 
Geographically? Yeah. No, I haven't. If you look at the flight tracks of commercial aircraft in our country, they're pretty rigidly specified now, as you may know. Uh, they, they're called flight lanes or routes or airways, right? To say that the phenomenon is occurring just along those ways so that the pilot can see them is, is really begging a question here. Um, you add in private pilots can fly much more broadly across this geography and at lower altitudes generally. Um, you'd expect, and there are far more of them, by the way, in the air at any one time, you'd expect private pilots to be reporting these things much more frequently than, than commercial pilots. But that's not what we're finding. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that could be what's called a reporting error or, or artifact, uh, simply because a lot of private pilots don't know about NARCAP nor how to contact us. So that may explain why. Okay. You see. I have, uh, I guess, one more question about NARCAP, and then I'll turn it over to Jeff here. Um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned that um, you have a, a staff of uh, diverse backgrounds. So maybe if you could take us through what would actually happen if a pilot came to you. What, what are those various fields that you employ, and, um, mm-hmm. and how are they relevant to a UAP sighting case? Well, the answer kind of depends on the, the nature of the case, uh, the event, uh, the details of what happened, and when and where, and so forth. Let's just take a typical commercial encounter at altitude, let's say. We have a, um, let's say, a DC-10, 747, doesn't matter, uh, A310 Airbus, uh, at altitude on autopilot, over our country, uh, daytime. Um, he has a close encounter. I'm making this up, by the way. This is not a <laughs> sure. case. Just to demonstrate some points. Um, he has a daytime encounter for 25 minutes off the left wing, and for another 10 minutes, the object flips over to the right-hand wing and then departs, usually in a climb, by the way. Well, uh, once we would receive that detailed information, the very first things we would do would be to file a Freedom of Information Act request with the FAA with the appropriate uh, TRACON uh, or center uh, over below which the airplane was flying at the time. Well, in that case, we've got to know when and where it took place and for how long and direction and all that stuff, kind of the flight dynamics. Um, and why is that? Because the FAA won't hold radar tapes uh, over, I think, 30 days or approximately 30 days. And we need to get that request in very early to, before they would reuse the tape. We would contact the local controllers and talk with them. So I've done that on a number of cases. We would engage the services of a meteorologist to document the local weather both from orbit, from satellite sensors, and from ground-based sensors, just to back up what the pilot said. We're not questioning the, the, the truthfulness of the pilot in any way. We're just trying to get an independent uh, second opinion, if you will, uh, that he said it was clear and visibility unlimited. Well, we can verify that, okay? So there's a meteorologist. Uh, if you experience turbulence, then we would bring in an aerodynamicist uh, who understands turbulence um, and have him, if not simulate, then at least cogitate on the geometry, where the phenomenon was relative to the airplane and to see if it might have passed in front of the nose and left some turbulence in the air and so forth. 
um, were pictures taken. Uh, very seldom that happens for obvious reasons, although once in a while it does. The pilots are more and more carrying cell phones with them and so forth. So we would have the opportunity then, if, if they did get a picture or two, to analyze the picture. But I must say that photographs of UAP are almost worthless. Um, they do almost nothing except prove that something was there. Uh, I would want to share the data from that flight crew with another flight crew who flies the same model aircraft mm -hmm. and ask them uh, to imagine themselves in the cockpit and to rationalize the instrument settings, the, the radio navigation equipment, is it set properly, and so forth. Once again, just as an, uh, a neutral, objective, secondary backup of what the, the crew said. Once in a while when we do that, we find a hoax. We uncover a hoax. Hmm. I mean, some guys claim to be pilots, and they're not. <laughs> they just Maybe amateurs, uh, they maybe want to get their name in the paper, or they may just want to screw us up. I don't know. So once in a while, not very often. So it really does pay to do that kind of a, an aerodynamic backup and crew backup. Hmm. In some cases, I just investigated a very interesting case in Brazil uh, out of Sao Paulo, a uh, commercial flight going into land at the airport there, uh, the busiest airport in Brazil. And it was sun about uh, sundown, roughly. The sun was still slightly above the horizon. And the pilot was a very good witness, a good observer, and re remembered a whole lot of details, which uh, I encouraged him to work with an artist who recreated uh, a, a color image, two images, actually, of what he saw out the window. He avoided that object because he thought both men thought they were going to collide with it and die. Literally, they were crouching behind their instrument panels. He turned off the autopilot and executed a sharp right-hand bank and went into a dive. All right? Mm -hmm. Well, my point is that the artist came up with some very useful and interesting details based upon his memory um, that we wouldn't have had if the pilot hadn't worked with the artist. So there's another technique or person that often can get involved. Mm -hmm. uh, another possibility is what I call digital audio. Uh, we have a, a very highly experienced expert in California who uh, has his own studio and equipment um, to extract the signal from noise. And so if we get a ground-to-air um, tape recording, or an air-to-air -air that has a lot of background static or whatever, noise of various kinds, um, he can pull that out. Um, and sometimes it, it uh, demonstrates some very interesting uh, voice inflections, uh, interpretations of words that might co co not come through otherwise. And that's a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. That's some of it. Uh, well, let okay. me, uh, Jeff, if you'll allow me, just one follow-up. Um, yeah. Um, so have, have any of these pilots ever reported anything that is, uh, well, I guess a term for it would be cultural overlay. Like maybe they see something in the sky that makes absolutely no sense. For instance, Jeff has done, worked on cases where people have reported seeing, uh, an upside down Star Trek ship or an 18 wheeler truck in the sky, you know, things that these people can relate to, but they didn't necessarily seem crazy. They just seemed to be seeing what their psychological filters would allow. Have you ever found any of that? 
Yes, I have to admit I have. And they're very difficult to understand. Um, now, I'm, I'm basically a psychologist by training and education. And so I enjoy those kind of cases just from that standpoint, uh, just to get into the person's head, if you will, mm -hmm. and to perhaps use hypnosis to to go back to uh, another image, uh, you know, a submerged image, perhaps. Uh, but the answer is yes, I have, and they are very difficult to, to explain, to understand. And if we dwell on them, we further lose the support of scientists. Mm -hmm. They just don't want to deal with that at all. It just gives them another excuse to turn their back on the whole thing. Right. Okay. Jeff? Wow. You, you took all the good questions, Jerry. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks again. Another great show left for me. Um, <laughs> Dr. Haynes, I think... Um, uh, I think what I first had written down here to ask you about was going all the way back to the first question, which is, you know, NARCAP's motto kind of to be uh, improve aviation safety and enhance scientific knowledge. And um, the things you mentioned, like uh, birds hitting planes and wind shear and all of these different things that can happen in the air, I see things like that as almost somewhat... Uh, you, you could more or less, I think, educate someone on how to avoid certain hazards in the air. But when we're talking about a UAP encounter where, I mean, frankly, these things are uh, reported to be able to fly rings around anything we got in the air, is there a way really to educate someone on safety issues besides what you mentioned about leave the shock and all uh, you know, thing behind and pay attention to what you're doing? Is there a whole lot more? that you can really train someone when something seems to be that erratic? <laughs> okay. Well, Jeff, that's a great question, too. And we've discussed that um, within our board for some time now, for some years, because we don't want to suggest things that are foolish uh, or wasteful, you know, that would make us look silly. But we want to help save lives. Sure. Um, statistically speaking, we have to go, we've gone on record on our website by telling the world that we do not feel there is a direct threat to aviation safety with a collision with one of these phenomena for a simple reason. And that reason is that statistically speaking, the, the phenomenon gets out of the way in time. Right. Airplane doesn't get out of the way, the, the phenomenon gets out of the way. Now, that's, if you take that seriously and, and think about it, you know, rationally, that says a whole lot. That, that says an awful lot about the, the perhaps the technology that's being used, uh, what I would call uh, thrust management. That's what an, an aerodynamicist would, would refer to. How they, they manipulate energy uh, it says a whole lot. So we can't in good conscience say to the airlines, well, uh, you know, they'll get out of your way. We, we say statistically speaking they will, but the pilot, we're recommending that the pilot not make any abrupt control maneuvers, or he may um, have some embarrassing things happen. You see what right. I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was just wondering, because that's, you know, it's such an erratic thing. It's like, how do you tell someone to respond to that? And like you say, they do get out of the way. Uh, and there's, has there ever, to your knowledge, been a very serious collision of any kind that resulted in, you know, uh, aircraft damage, significant damage? 
Well, uh, that you can talk you, about. <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you go on our website, uh, there's a section in there called technical reports, mm-hmm. and our technical report number one that I wrote back in 2000 actually contains over a hundred incidents we call them of aviation safety, and. Uh, it's a historical summary, basically. Um, I invite you and your, your listeners to do that, to take a look at that report, and you will find at least one case in there, which, in, which by the way, is an Air Force case, where the plane crashed. Mm-hmm. Oh, another thing I need to point out, Jeff uh, and Jeremy, um, that NARCAP really is a, just a United States organization. We, uh, we're very interested in foreign cases, and we do have foreign advisors, uh, technical reps for many countries now. But we're only concerned with uh, American registered airplanes. And so, for instance, if, uh, let's say, uh, American Airlines, just to use an example, is flying over Brazil and has an encounter, a sighting, we need somebody in Brazil who can run some interference for us and get some good data, you see. And so we do. We we have a a couple reps in in Brazil and Mm -hmm. in 12 other countries now. Uh, Likewise, if they are impressed enough with what we're doing and feel that they need their own organization in their own country, we stand ready to help them set up NARCAP Brazil and, and NARCAP Portugal and NARCAP Canada and so forth. Sure. And in fact, we've, we've done that. When uh, Well, I think that our first interaction was on the uh, O'Hare case, um, and I was sending you some imaging from yes. the singular photograph and the maps and all of that. And uh, yeah, we appreciate uh, I, that very much. I appreciate the uh, the mention in the report. I'm very proud of that. Um, the did did you view that as a? I mean, I'll put it to you this way. In in my opinion, and I know nothing of aeronautics. That seems like a really dangerous situation for O'Hare Airport. Did did you see that as this is a very serious hazardous uh, event that happened? Um, I mean, granted, they handled it. There apparently was no accident of any sort. But I know from speaking to one of the witnesses that, um, you know, they held up people from landing. And uh, that poses a whole nother problem for something as congested as O'Hare is when you've got, uh, you know, planes doing round robin around the place to try to get time to land. Did you see that as a really hazardous case? Well, uh, are you asking uh, how hazardous was it on a scale of 1 to 100 or something? Uh, Sure, let's go with that. Well, yes, it was hazardous uh, for the reason that how can air traffic controllers keep airplanes apart if they can't see them? And as you know, uh, uh, this uh, whatever this thing was at O'Hare back in 2006... I think it was six, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, it was not on radar. We've right. confirmed that ourselves uh, through FAA tapes. Uh, it was not seen from the tower. However, it was seen visually by a rather large number of people on the ground at the airport, both air, air, uh, airline of employees and passengers. Okay. Well, what do we expect our FAA to do? And, and I'm going to their defense right now. Mm-hmm. Um, by saying this, if I were tasked with with the FAA tasks, given the 
rather old equipment we've got, radar surveillance equipment, there's not a much I could do either, you see. Right. And so it's kind of like uh, 9-11. The FAA's response there was, I think, exactly what it should have been, and that is to divert all airplanes immediately to the ground. Right. You see. And by doing that, you're isolating the signal from the noise. Well, do you, and this is something that I ponder about a lot with that case, because in speaking with the one witness that I did in particular, uh, who gave me such graphic detail of what this thing looked like, and it almost sounds familiar to things I've personally seen, and and instances and and details that I don't think anyone could have made up, I have to wonder, uh, and I'm I'm curious what you think about this, is that we've got a, a very busy airport, very congested airport, with an object hanging over top of it that no one uh, knows what it is. And we don't see any, you know, in a post 9-11 world, we don't see any kind of anything uh, out of the military to check this out or um, any kinds of planes scrambled that we know of. Uh, do you find that weird or, uh, or, or what do you think would be the reason that they wouldn't have checked it out? I mean, this was an extended sighting. Uh, by all counts uh, of of what we think about when we think about a uh, an un- unidentified object sighting, this was rather lengthy. So I'm wondering what what do you think that was all about? Oh boy, um, <laughs> one of the Freedom of Information Act requests I submitted was to the Air Force uh, at an air base near O'Hare. Okay, and of course I did that asking for scramble related information. And I never received any reply from the uh, from the Air Force. Hmm. And I don't know how to interpret that, of course. Uh, it could be a number of reasons. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the government, it is a government organization, and, and it is required by law to reply, and they didn't reply. Hmm. So what does that mean? You know, I don't know what it means. Uh, I don't want to jump to conclusions. Yeah. Um, yeah. But let me uh, tackle the larger picture, which is scrambles in general, mm-hmm. as a kind of an ongoing back, well, let me call it a background research project of my own and, and another NARCAP friend, uh, colleague. Uh, we have been collecting and, well, analyzing, let's say, statistically, reports where airplanes are, these are ground witnesses now, not flight crew witnesses, where airplanes are seen flying across the sky and an object comes and and flies along with it, so to speak, either behind, ahead, above, or beside, whatever, and what it does and so forth. Um, Then we have other, a whole other set of data, which is very large, where we see this ground witnesses again, that claim to see an object of with usually a sphere or some, you know, odd shape flying across the sky and an airplane or two or three approaching it. And in many cases, they're military airplanes. They're on scramble, clearly, and they're going up to identify it. Um, and what we're looking for is patterns. Um, we're trying to to extract some some wisdom here from a lot of data. Uh, there's a whole lot of scrambles going on to identify something. Um, and I don't expect the Air Force to tell me what they're doing. That's none of my business. You know, they, it is my business, but it isn't, if you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, but we're just using open literature approaches uh, to 
gather what kind of insights we can on this the same thing. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yes, sir. I think so. Um, I, I mean, I think uh, he, here's here's the other side of, of kind of the same problem is that uh, I think NARCAP, uh, and believe me, I I don't blame NARCAP or you in the least for doing this, but it seems like you guys have taken a, a def, drawn a definitive line um, between what we call the UFO community and NARCAP, which I think is probably uh, the, the most intelligent move I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> um but when when you reach that point of saying we need to draw this separation, we need to, uh, in order to be taken seriously, we need to draw this line. Has that ever hindered any investigation? Knowing full well, I mean, I've been in this thing for twenty years, and I know how territorial that some UFO researchers can be with their witnesses or their data. Has that definitive line that you kind of drawn there? Has that ever hindered an investigation that you've had to do? Yes and no. Um, I would say on the major cases it is not. Mm-hmm. On some of the more peripheral, what I'd call incidental cases, it has, and that's fine. Uh, if people don't want to cooperate with us, that's their choice. Uh, we're in this for the long term, and truth is truth, and uh, we will get to the bottom of it eventually, uh, without the incidental. Um, cases. But we're trying to be as uh, helpful to others. We're publishing everything. We're not keeping anything back from the public. Uh, We respond to requests for information. Uh, We have actually had some of our uh, technical staff, uh, who volunteer, by the way, uh, to help other organizations with some of their, their studies. Right. When it's appropriate, and, you know, I mean, that gets to be an expensive thing sometimes, and we don't have all the time in the world. Sure. Um, In in terms of, I would say, big-name sightings or big-name events, um, I mean, one of the first ones that comes to mind for us on this show is that we've had uh, Dr. Maccabee on a few times to talk about the Pensacola Gulf Breeze area, and and we've mentioned on the show about places like the, the Hudson Valley uh, Pine Bush, New York, places like that. Has NARCAP been, ever done anything in the way of looking into the Gulf Breeze situation? Not necessarily the Ed Walter stuff, but the basically the, the plethora of things that have been cited down there over the years. The answer is no. Um, we're into aviation safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I will share with you a personal study I did. Sure. Um, uh, Ed Walter sent me three photographs, uh, oh, probably a year after the basic event, the alleged event. Uh, and these three photographs were fascinating. I do photo analysis, and he had taken one of them. Uh, I, uh, a young man had taken another uh, with 35-millimeter camera. This is not digital, by the way. These are film cameras. And then a woman had taken the third picture. Well, to make a long story short, it was basically a luminous area in the night sky, clear night sky. And the two photographs that that Ed had taken and this young man had taken showed pretty much the same thing. It was a, a pinkish uh, kidney-shaped area uh, against a black background. But the woman had 
apparently she had a camera she wasn't too familiar with, uh, particularly working in the dark. And so she didn't take it off of, of uh, time exposure. And so as she's holding this camera, trying to center the, the light in the sky in the center of the field of view, the shutters open. And so the image gets smeared all over as she wanders around, right? Right. Well, I'm glad she did because, and then the shutter finally shut, by the way. I think it was like a, what, an 18-second exposure <laughs> before the film finally wow. said to itself, I've got enough light on it, I'm going to shut down. <laughs> right. Well, what is fascinating to me is that if you, which I've done, I look at what happened along that line smear of light from the shutter open to the shutter closed period. And you know what I found? Spots of color that change in the oddest way, uh, as if it's strobing, but each strobe is a different color. Wow. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, wow is right. Hmm. And this was the same object shown in the other two photographs, taken practically at the same time, not quite, uh, which show a single uh, kidney-shaped pink uh, self-luminous phenomena in the sky. Right. It has nothing to do with aviation safety, nothing to do with NARCAP. It's mm. just, to me, a fascinating piece of the puzzle here. Right, right. Have you have you at all had a chance to look at any of the, the daylight video footage that was shot down there of a, I don't know, what amounts to looking like a, a silver ball that seems to shoot away and it's just a ridiculous, no acceleration whatsoever. It's just here and bang, it's gone. Have you taken a look at any of that no i haven't okay and then that kind of leads right into the next thing which it, it, I, i'm curious if you yourself or narcap in general uh has ever had opportunity to uh study something directly in other words repeat sightings or repeat phenomena in a certain location we had ted phillips on who spoke about marley woods and and everything that goes on there, which seems to be like an ongoing phenomena that seems to be visible. Uh, have you ever, uh, guys ever had an opportunity to study anything like that? You mean ourselves personally? Yes. No, no. Nothing Unfortunately, like the, the phenomenon isn't that cooperative. Well, well yeah. <laughs> You're telling me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so into the weirdness here, because that's kind of what we're into uh in reports that you get from pilots sometimes these things as i understand get ridiculously close as you just described to us in the area of maybe something that you wouldn't necessarily want to put into a narcap report to throw out to everyone have you ever heard those stories from a pilot that said i think i saw something uh i i was reading earlier uh on top secret testimony uh, site that um, you had pilots describe things that seemed to have a canopy on top, a disc with a, a dome on the top, and where extra detail was seen inside. My question would be at that point, what, what sort of details do they see? Do they see something moving inside of it? Do they is it, is it just additional details that they can't quite make out, but it seems more detailed than the rest of the object? But in towards that end, it's kind of a twofold question. Um, has a pilot ever come to you and heard uh, or and said to you, uh, while I was viewing this thing, I felt like it was watching us. I felt like, uh, or I heard something in my ear, or 
I heard voices that I couldn't explain, or I heard something on the radio I couldn't explain, that sort of thing that almost indicates that there is an intelligence there that is doing something? Uh Uh-huh. Well, you asked three or four questions all in one there. Right. (laughs) I I could approach it from a lot of different points of view. Uh, uh, You may or may not be aware of the fact, I wrote a book a number of years ago called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, and in this book I took a pretty close look at uh, cases from around the world where people had deliberately tried to signal to the phenomenon. And in each one of these events that I documented, they got a signal back. And then the question is, uh, my uh, concern is, uh, was it an intelligent response? All right, and how do you prove intelligence? So um, based upon that book, you'll find quite a number of pilot cases in that book, but also ground witnesses as well. I came to the, I think, rational view, based upon that data, that there is an intelligence behind the phenomenon. And don't get me started, because that would take another three hours to, to go into the details of CE5s. We got but time. I do recommend the book. <laughs> <laughs> I really would rather stay focused on, on flight safety. Um, sure. This book, CE5, I'm just looking at a copy right now, published in 1999 by Sourcebooks in uh, Illinois. Sourcebooks, Inc., mm-hmm. okay. called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, and I think you might find it interesting uh, from that standpoint. Absolutely. Uh, but to go back to your, uh, your earlier question, yes, I have interviewed pilots who've said they've heard things, um, and as soon as a pilot admits that to me, his, he's putting his career on the line. He, oh, sure. He's really, uh, he wants to retire. And so uh, we maintain 100% confidentiality with all reports we receive. Uh, NASA has been administering the Aviation Safety Reporting System for the FAA for many years now. And we adopted the same reporting procedures that ASRS uses to guarantee uh, their pilot reporters uh, with anonymity. And so we do exactly the same thing so that we will not jeopardize the uh, flight career of a reporting pilot to us. We want to make that very clear. Hmm. And because of that, we are getting some interesting cases uh, that have scientific uh, pay dirt, let's say. Well, let me uh, go back to your question of hearing something. Yeah. Uh, I. Years ago, long, long before NARCAP came along, I investigated a L-1011 case over Lake Michigan. It's been pretty well documented now in various places, where the captain, it was clear sunny day, July 4th, uh, he's over Milwaukee Center and on autopilot, uh, generally heading towards Detroit, Michigan, uh, when a very bright oval-shaped metallic object or disc, he called it a disc, comes down out of the sky uh, from the Canadian side, in that direction at least, to the north, comes down to his altitude, does a high-speed turn, and then takes off off his left wing in a climb again, all right? Lots of other details, but my point is this, that he told me that when that object was doing its high-speed turn uh, off his left wing, he heard what he called a, uh, a perfect tone, a, per- a pitch, a perfect frequency. And I had a chance to 
visit him. He lived near me in California at the time. We've since moved. But I visited him in his apartment, and he had a piano there. I said, okay, Phil, can you find the key of that, of that note you heard on the piano? And he did, and he played it for me. And so I know the, know the frequency, you see. Whether that was an aerodynamic shock wave or some vibration set up in the cockpit from an air blast, we don't know. Um, but it only lasted when the object was at the nearest point and turning. Um, it was a pure tone, he said. And I said, well, are you sure you know what overtones and harmonics are? And he said, oh, yes, uh, I, I think I do. Just a pure frequency. Um, so there, there's one example that I have documented quite well, I think, in journal articles right. of an L-1011 captain hearing something, um, right. but not any, voices. Right, uh, right. How, how about anything in terms of uh, any sort of visual aberrations of any kind that seem physical to, to you listening to the reporter or listening to the report of the pilot telling you this? Anything with blurred vision or even... Uh, uh, something that we would probably deem hallucinatory uh, effects that might be seen during this kind of event? Uh, you know, um, I would have to honestly say no. Uh, these pilots are pretty calm and cool and collected, I must say. Hmm. And when I have, uh, I have quite a number of air-to-ground tape recordings um, that, you know, they're made by the ground uh, because the pilot's calling for help. <laughs> you know, can you see anything on radar? Uh, uh, can you scramble a jet? Uh, can you see me? Can you see it? And so forth. Um, and when I listen to those tapes very carefully, which I have done, the pilots are very well controlled. They don't scream necessarily unless it's a, an imminent, you know, like they're hitting the ground or something. They know they're going to die. Um, but if they maintain the control of the airplane, they use the right jargon, uh, they don't scream, they don't cry. I have some interesting examples, particularly from Freddie Valentich in Australia. Uh, I have his tape, um, where he disappeared, by the way, and never was found. Right. But uh, in that case, uh, the Australian officials, aviation officials, publicly released the printed transcript of that audio tape, never released the, trans the, the tape itself. And in their transcript, I take some issue with uh, one phrase. I think they said something that, that Freddie, according to them, said, it seems to be stationary. Mm -hmm. And as I hear his voice on that tape, I hear him say, I, it seems to be chasing me, stationary oh. chasing me. And with a good, strong Australian accent. So there's an example of, of the value of having a good audio tape. Um, a sure. whole lot of good value there. How, how many pilots um, say, that's it for me, I'm done, I'm out, I'm not going up there again with these things? I mean, have you ever come across that? <laughs> Where you get the opposite of that calm demeanor, you get that, I'm not going up there again. No, not really. No, hmm. I haven't. I haven't. Uh, yeah. These guys, I respect them very much. They, they're under a lot of stress and strain and rules and regulations and oh, yeah. you know, uh, um, no, they take their jobs very seriously. Uh, I think we can be very proud of the job they're doing. We just want to work beside them and make this flying safer. Sure, sure. Jeremy, fire away, my man. All right. Uh, I guess I, I sort of have one more 
I guess, big question I've been formulating as I'm listening here, which is, in in terms of the, the alien abduction realm, we've interviewed people, and I've spoken to researchers, who they want to create a story that's um, sort of, you know, I guess, socially acceptable or something they think the media will understand, which is little doctors come here and do X. Uh, so they treat any sort of high strangeness aspects of their cases as outliers. I've also uh, met great UFO witnesses who you would you know see in the top ten list of greatest UFO cases of all time. I've met with some of them, and they have extraordinary other stories that go along with it that they'll never tell for the same reason. They want the media to take them seriously. And at the beginning, you know, I heard you say sort of the same thing, which is, well, NARCAP wants to be taken seriously, but if in 10 years that hasn't worked, is there at any point, um, do you say to yourself, okay, it's not working and it's a little disingenuous to not present the whole picture? Do you think it would be more helpful to present the whole picture with the high strangeness, the whole kit and caboodle at a certain point when you realize these people ain't going to listen to us either way? Well, I can't answer that until I know what you think the whole picture is. Otherwise, I'm just agreeing with your definition. <laughs> well, the whole picture of whatever your data shows, uh, not, so that you're not you're not. Um, what well, you're asking keeping is out, how, keeping how out we, reports of the the cultural overlay stuff, for instance, that that you think is like, well, maybe that's a little embarrassing. We can't include that. We can't talk about it. Whatever it would be. Uh huh. Well, what you're really asking is, uh, do we share our outliers? Yeah. Yeah. The answer is yes. We haven't held anything back. Okay. Um, and you just have to look at where we want to be conservative. Pilots are conservative. Aviation is conservative. Uh, it's a business. Uh, it's a very important business with people's lives on the line. Uh, outliers can be extremely important from a safety point of view. And it may be that one outlier event which can bring an airplane down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can't hold back on that. I guess that would be my answer. We don't hold back. We can't hold back. Okay. Well, all right. I think we've uh, come to the end of our program here. So, Dr. Haynes, I would like to thank you very, very much for doing this and uh, invite you back to talk about your book, uh, CE5. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Jeremy and Jeff, and I would look forward to doing that. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Ted Rowe from NARCAP, and you're listening to Jeff and Jeremy on Paratopia, and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO UFO Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it eight thousand phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time where we just want to hear the show just tell us how we can get ufo magazine in one way okay okay just go to www.ufomag.com subscribe online you happy yeah was that so hard actually harder than you know Citizen, do you like comedy? Do you like deep discussion? Do you like the greatest guests in the paranormal fields of the Earth? Of course you do. Then you'll love Paratopia. So won't you please join us at www.paratopia.net and be a good citizen. Friend. <laughs>
research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh. So, Jeff. So, Jeremy. Should we patent that at some point? So, Jeff, so Jeremy. And so the Jeff, and so the Jeremy. <laughs> um, that interview was, and this is no insult to uh, Dr. Haynes, a thousand times better than I, th- I thought, because <laughs> I thought that he would be even stricter in, in not wanting to even talk about parameters of this UAP phenomena, you know? He, he's. I knew he was going to be awesome. You can you can sit back and go, well, why won't he talk about this? And why won't he talk about that? You know what? How many times you heard, that Dick Haynes, what a fruitcake. Or, have you heard what Dick Haynes is saying? No, you never hear that. You know why? Because he's a real researcher. Because <laughs> he's a serious man. Because he's a scientist. Because he's a doctor. This is why. I well, mean, this guy is... Why don't we why don't we afford him the same care and love that we do? I, I if you were here, I'd slap you for even saying that name. <laughs> he was an emergency around, room doctor from what I recall. Uh, around someone <laughs> with as much integrity as as, Ms., as Dr. Richard Haynes. I would slap well, you for that. I, I say it with, with jest in my heart. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to absolutely go snatch that uh, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind book yes, and read that. And um, I'm glad that he's uh, agreed to come back on the show because I, I find that all fascinating. Yes, yes, absolutely. Is that available on Amazon, do we know? Um, How about you ramble and I'll take a look and tell the listeners. Yeah, it would have been good if uh, if we'd uh, planned this. But, <laughs> oh, well. So Nobody minds. Well, I'll, I'll ramble while you, you look that up, and, and, and my <laughs> rambling will be completely off topic. It's this. So I wrote a, um, I wrote a uh, well, a hit piece, I guess you could say, on exopolitics for the last issue of UFO Magazine. Uh, basically saying Stephen Bassett is a cult leader. It's a cult. I laid it all out. Um, it's at least cult-like thinking, if not an actual you know religious cult. It's, it follows the same rules and regulations. And Bassett... <laughs> uh, is livid about that, of course, and so I guess his next column is going to be sort of answering those charges without answering me directly. But he also wrote a letter to the editor, which, um, for various you know re- technical reasons, really, uh, is not going to be published. They may publish it on their website, ufomag.com, but, um, but I doubt it. <laughs> well, I guess that the technical reason would be that uh, that he put a spreadsheet in there with all listing all of the guests he's ever had at the X conferences, as if to prove that um, that it's these are anomalies. These Alfred Weber's, Michael Salas, Stephen Greer's. He actually has great guests, and no one's arguing that he doesn't have great guests. We're just arguing that they are marginalized by the craptasticness that is Alfred Weber, Michael Salas, Stephen Greer. So. Uh, and I, I don't have that letter. Uh, Nancy Burns read it to me. She was going to send it to me to maybe do something with for the show. But ultimately, <laughs> yeah, ultimately, I don't feel like going down the list of uh, of 
of things that he says I got wrong that I did not, um, because I think like anyone listening to this will know that it's self-explanatory. All I'll just say is that the, the first line of it was saying that, because this was funny, and the rest of it's just dull um, bullshit, basically. That the, So the first line is essentially, and I don't, I, I'm, I'm not quoting this directly, obviously, but that exopolitics is not a cult. It's a new science, not unlike physics. And when she read that to me, I, I just, I literally, I LOL'd. I laughed and laughed and laughed, and I was really hoping that the rest of it would be a whirlwind of funny and crazy, and it just wasn't. It was a whirlwind of boring and delusional. <laughs> well, if I may interject here and talk about something actually relevant and important, CE5, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, is available on Amazon. All one need do is look up CE-5, colon, Close Encounters of the Fifth, spelled out, kind. And it, there it is, from Richard Haynes, June 1999 paperback. New and used from a measly $9.47. Go buy it. Yes, I'm on it. There's about to be, uh, instead of 18 used and news, there's about to be 16. Be aware. <laughs> uh, so, all right, getting back to one Dr. Haynes. I was really um, hoping to have Ted Rowe on this episode, but didn't didn't work out that way. That's all right. We'll have okay. Ted on yet again uh, eventually. Yes. I'm certain. Um, so what do you think there, Jeff? What do you think about the work NARCAP is doing? I know prior to the interview uh, you had some concerns just in terms of what exactly are they, yeah, what are they doing all this yeah. for, uh, you know, 10 years out, um, if right. it's ineffective in the ways that they want it to be uh, effective. Any any thoughts? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's ineffective anymore. I mean, I'm glad he explained exactly what the, you know, what the concerns were regarding aircraft safety. I get that now. I get that a little better what that all means. You know, I think, like I asked, you know, what do you do against something? Uh, how do you evade something that you really don't know which, which way it's going next? It's so erratic. But you know what? He's right in the sense that they usually get out of the way. It's not like they're, you know, they're, they're running into airplanes anywhere or that, that sort of thing. Um, but... To me, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, I think if I was an airplane pilot and I saw something like that that was on one wing one minute and one wing the next, <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? He could turn sideways and go through my 767 like a buzzsaw and there wouldn't be a damn thing I could do about it. And it's true, they could, but they don't. Um, Isn't it strange that we live in a world where people are reporting all the time, pilots are reporting all the time, something else in the sky with them that they don't know what it is and it's interacting with them and it's like you know if you blink at them they'll blink back or whatever sure uh and we're not allowed to talk about that like that's not something that i mean think about just think about the 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 nesting doll of strangeness that is our society so that's one and then within that the little doll within that doll is uh that certain people believe that if they narrow down the focus let's say and create and then cut out outliers based on what they think people who don't accept or talk about any of this to begin with will accept and talk about then even if that were to occur which it doesn't we'd still not be getting the full picture of what's going on here so it's like and it just seems absurd on its face the more i think about it because i used to think like bud hopkins and all those people were 
you know, maybe they had a point. It's like originally, of course, you want to present this to the media in a way that's digestible. Um, but that assumes that they would digest it in the first place. And they showed no signs of digesting any portion of this in a realistic way uh, from the get-go. So why are we watering it down? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, really, when you think about it, it and, I don't, and we've talked about this before, is that all of the things you just mentioned in association with all of the other absurdities in this, you know, it just, something about it doesn't seem like it's all us or our mentalities. It seems like there is something else that's, you know, that's, that's at play there. I don't know what, I'm just saying, it's just weird that, you know, you that the that the people who just for instance in Dr. Haynes's focus is airplane pilots, the guys we put our lives in their hands. <laughs> Hundreds of people, you know, uh, in in probably one pilot's day put their lives in his hands. And this guy sees something unusual in the sky that he doesn't know what it is, but it's clearly it's clearly there. It's it's uh it looks to be intelligently controlled. And he's got to be afraid to talk about that because he'll lose his job. <laughs> I mean, really? What, um, You're a pilot. What? You're in the sky. You see a metallic craft-looking object. What? Uh, you signal it. It signals you. It flies away so that you don't crash into it. You call home and you say, Honey, I just saw this thing. And your wife says, that's great, dear. I hope you get home safe. You talk to your boss. You say, I just saw this thing. Your boss says, um, cool. Death well, duty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how about we not talk about this? Or, yeah, I mean, sure. Stuff flies around in the sky, and it communicates with you, and then it leaves. No problem. Anyway, next subject. What? How is this, how is this reality? Uh, doesn't it bear doesn't it bear interesting similarities to what we've said about the government quote unquote cover up, which is that they really don't know what it is and they'd oh, yeah. rather just not talk about it. Right. <laughs> Let's just not talk about this because if we talk about it, it'll mean that there's something here that we can't defend you against and therefore we're irrelevant. <laughs> so let's just shh, shh, shh. Yeah, and, and the more you, you know? and the more you look at this just pure UFO data from the NARCAP standpoint, the uh, the Rich Dolan secret space program just doesn't hold water. I mean, it, we're, it, it's not us doing this. I mean, for years and years and years and years, for decades in and out, since the dawn of flight, we have not been buzzing our own planes. <laughs> I mean, that just is not happening, right? Mm-hmm. And so... So that's not happening. That's part one of there's no secret space program. And part two is since that's not happening and it's something else and it continuously occurs, then we don't have any secret weaponry that can defend against it or we would be. It wouldn't be happening anymore. Mm. So the end. (laughs) We got what we got. We're stuck on a rock. Deal with it. You know, I I asked um, Dr. Haynes about O'Hare, like... How can a clearly solid object hover over a, 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 one of the busiest airports in the known world? I mean, I mean, an airport that people literally put up photographs of. Look how congested this airport is. Isn't this crazy? Post 9-11 and no response at all from a couple of wingmen, you know? Mm-hmm. Not, not a response at all. 
And, um, you know, part of me thinks they didn't know it was there and they didn't believe it was there. And part of me, the better part of me, I think, says they knew it was there. They just knew there's nothing they could do about it. So well, why? His, his answer to that was absolutely fascinating. And it might, I mean, it's certainly the first time I've heard him say it, uh, which is that he did file a Freedom of Information Act request and not not didn't even get stonewalled. He just got ignored, which mm-hmm. is illegal. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I wonder if there was any follow-up with that or if maybe he was just like, mm, I'm not going to step on these toes. I guess we should have asked, but... Uh, you know, my way of thinking about it is if they had scrambled, uh, you know, two F-16s up there to go buzz this thing around or chase it away or do something, then that would be acknowledging that it's there. <laughs> you know, and acknowledging that we got to get around this thing and you know, circle it and maybe fire missiles at it, what are we going to do? So to do that is to officially acknowledge that we saw something. And then, of course, you'd have witnesses on the ground saying, we saw, you know, military jets buzzing this thing. They know it was there. They knew it. And, you know, God knows, after 20 minutes, how does the government not know that there's maybe video cameras rolling or a TV station rolling on this thing? Maybe they didn't know that. What is the nature of the discrepancy between the people in the watchtower not being able to see it and the people on the ground being able to see it? Is that an atmospheric issue, or is that this was not a 3D object in the sky issue? What what would that be? I guess really I should write up my own report on this because I've I've got scads of notes about it, but I don't particularly agree with where the object was reported to be. In other words, I think that they. Um, let me look at my notes right here. Here's here's how here's how prepared we are on this show. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah. It, it sounds uh, like we're asking uh, written down questions, and and yet. <laughs> no, no, and, and I'll tell you why because it's been so long since O'Hare that I really so many other things have been going on that frankly I just haven't paid a whole hell of a lot of attention to. You know, keeping my files nice and neat, and by the fact that I lost the computer and went out and bought my Mac, right. uh, I lost a lot of files. So I had to go through all of my Gmail today in the hopes that I would find these files, and I did, in fact, find a few. Not exactly the ones I want, but I managed to throw together something that I did want to bring up on the show, but opportunity just didn't present itself for me to do that. And I, I had other things I wanted to ask about. So I have a file here that, uh, let's see, I called O'Hare. And in there, I'm looking at a map that I had from the case. Now, the eyewitness reports that we initially got was that this this object was over gate C-17. And that's where they say it was. I'm going to post this map on the message board uh, when this show airs. So you can see exactly where C-17 is. I have a basically a Google labeled map of all the roads. Now, I spoke to an eyewitness who said that um, they were at the intersection of a road that was uh, right next to the airport, Mannheim Road. Now, th- this person is listed, and, and NARCAP did interview this person, so uh, I just talked to her first. She was at the intersection of Mannheim and uh, E. Irving Park, which bends around the one corner of the airport. I asked her, on what road were you sitting? She was getting to make a, I think she was getting ready to make a right-hand turn. And at that point, we had the photograph. 
Now, everybody remembers the O'Hare photograph. There were a lot of fakes, but there was one single interesting photograph. And in that photograph, you saw what looked like an M&M on its side in the air that seemed to have a dark-colored bottom and a light-colored top. And it was a very, more or less, kind of an overcast day. I went through a lot of work to identify what could only be, in my opinion, the runway that this was shot from. I found nothing about this photograph to be faked in the sense this this object was composited in. It looked like it was an object that was truly in the picture. There were other issues, which I'll talk about on another show. But there was only one runway where this could have been taken, in my opinion. Because I look at the angle of the runway, how many sections there are, and where the plane would have been. It's obvious somebody took this from a plane because you don't get on the runway without one. From there, I said, I think the approximate line of sight of this object should be in this spot. And that, I'm looking at the label. Well, I'd have to get the label of the PSD file. I did an overlay of what's the name of the runways. And keep in mind, this is on the other side of the airport from gate C-17, where this thing was allegedly supposed to have been. I asked the eyewitness, now that I know where this thing is, from your line of sight, sitting at this traffic light, where was the object? And she didn't say to her far right. (laughs) She told me up and to my left a little bit. That's exactly where I had it pegged on the map. So... If people in the tower were looking towards gate C-17, I don't know that that's where it was. <laughs> hmm. Will that explain it? I don't know. All I can tell you is... Why did people say it was at C-17? Uh, I don't know. Did it move? I, I don't know. Were there two of them? I, I, I have... Ma- I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Is what do you that know, Jeff? Not, not a hell of a lot. Tell us what you know. Uh, what you've got is is a discrepancy for me that I could just easily say, well, the picture's a fake. But the problem with that is, how would I have a witness who independently, who hasn't seen this photograph, who doesn't know that I know where I've pegged this thing in a line of sight to her location, how would she know exactly where it should be? <laughs> that doesn't add up to me. So I know that everybody says this object was spotted over gate C-17. But in fact, from my witness, from the map, from the photograph, those three things are telling me it was over an opposite runway on the other side of the airport. Hmm. Where she said it was to her line of sight is exactly where it is on the picture. So did it move? I don't know. Was everybody looking and seeing it? What Was it visible in multiple places? Could it have been one thing and visible in multiple areas? I don't know. We don't even know what we're dealing with, so how, how can we say? Mm-hmm. Could it have been two? I don't know. I, I mean, I don't really, I don't really have any, uh, I don't have any good answer. I, I mean, I, I thought to myself, could it be that the photograph and the witness were both fake, and one preceded the other? And you know, in other words, this witness I spoke to was responsible for the fake photograph, and therefore had it all planned out. In speaking with that witness, there's no way. I mean, no way. I questioned her round, round, and round, and round. And she never faltered. She never added to anything. And plus, her description of the object was so incredibly detailed because she said that 
I threw myself open to it. I'm standing there in the international parking lot by this point. She's standing in the international parking lot looking at it and taking in every bit that she can comprehend. And she said, I know this is going to sound really dumb because I asked her, give me detail. What did this thing look like? Was it said it looked like it was spinning? It was still, it wasn't wavering about. And she says, I know this is going to sound really dumb, but the bottom of it looked like it was covered in gnats, like little fine black bugs crawling all over it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I said, kind of like static on a a TV. And she says, yeah, but really fine, really fine and kind of undulating these these gnat-looking things were just kind of undulating all over the bottom of it. Hmm. I was like, yeah, well, that's too dumb to make up. That's not... That doesn't sound like uh, well, I, and I, to boot, I've seen objects sort of like that, uh, with that kind of characteristic about it. So, speaking with her, she was aghast over it. She was completely fascinated, and you could tell this was no actress. This this person was telling me the truth. So I don't believe that she had anything to do with faking anything or was lying to me. So she would not. Appear I just on think a, that on a primetime live special anytime soon. Absolutely not. Excellent. Absolutely not. I know who she is, and and uh, I'm sure Narcap knows who she is. But I talked to her on the phone for a very long time uh, over the course of a couple of days. As the hoaxes were coming out, I would look at them, and then I'd say within I don't know 20 minutes, I'd have the the fake, the one that the, the fake was generated from <laughs> on Google. Like, okay, that's fake. Okay, that's fake. But she didn't really know this because she wasn't really on top of what was breaking on Above Top Secret as we were posting these fake ones and saying, here's how they did it, here it's fake, here it's fake, because there was just tons of them. You know, some people would take a picture of, like, uh, inside the airport when you're looking at the uh, where all the planes dock up and unload, they'd take a shot and, uh, and grab that shot, mirror it, flip it horizontally, and then they'd insert the UFO in it, basically just taking a, a circle and embossing it or something like that, and then they'd put that up. And we'd find the original photograph that that was made from and say, therefore, com- conclusively prove that it had been faked with Photoshop. And she said, you know, that one photograph that's on Above Top Secret, that looks like what I saw. Everything that's come after that doesn't look anything like what I saw. So I think those are fake. I said, well, you're right. They are fake. <laughs> you know, that one we can't figure out. That one we just can't seem to get our heads around. Um, it's very interesting. So... You know that was. Uh, well, if we're going to do this much uh, after chat on O'Hare, you might as well tell us now what the uh, what was the problem with the photo. There was a couple things wrong with it. Number one, it wasn't uh, a really great resolution. Number one, however, it's totally what I expect from a uh, a cell phone camera. Completely consistent with that. When I first saw it, I immediately went out and started looking for landing O'Hare. Uh, landing strip, uh, runway, any of these things. And I did find a photograph that looked incredibly similar, uh, both in the information that was in the frame and the consistency of the composition of it. The difference was is that the the picture I found, was I think it was on a Japanese businessman's site. It was, it was showing congestion coming into, that's why we called it the congestion shot. Uh, he was showing like three planes coming in right on top of each other practically. It was ridiculous. And I looked at that and I said, that's what it's got to be made from that. 
And then the more you look at it, you overlay it, you notice that there are distortions in the photograph itself that were so subtle that essentially, I mean, not only was the pitch of it changed, but the there were distortions in that that were basically caused from one camera versus another camera will have different ocular distortions uh, when they shoot a picture. And uh, not only that, but certain lights in one shot were off in the other and vice versa. The runway seemed to be damp uh, and it wasn't in the other. These are all really, really subtle things that you have to say to yourself, if you're going to fake something, to what degree of detail are you going to go? And most hoaxers won't go to such a ridiculous length. Uh, to fake something. And uh, and so I threw that out, uh, saying that uh, this is way too much work for a backplate uh, to then composite the object into. Plus, there was no, uh, there was no, absolutely no evidence whatsoever of a composite of the object. It looked completely consistent with the rest of the photograph. Uh, there was no edges. There were no um, just every telltale sign that you look for. Mm-hmm. The problem came when you go into ultra zoom mode and you start looking around at other different places in the picture, namely the sky. There came an object uh, in the sky that uh, someone I used to do stuff with uh, in this field visually uh, thought couldn't possibly be there unless someone put it there. Mm-hmm. It was a, a set of pixels that were dark, that were um, symmetrical. And, and we both saw it, and I said, it is weird. You're talking about the smiley you know? face? Yes. Has that been brought up elsewhere? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's public, yeah. <laughs> oh, so I don't necessarily believe that that is a, a valid thing to say it was tampered with. I, I'm not... I can't be positive, but I can't be, you know, sure that that's what it is either. Because there are other spots in that photograph where I see symmetry in the sky in the pixels, but it could be. So when you've got these kind of doubts and you have no witness to begin with who says this is my photograph, mm. you're you're better off to back off because. Um, uh, well, that was the anonymous photo, right? It was, so and and, was and usually, I, well, and no, absolutely not. Okay. And usually, I wouldn't even, uh, I wouldn't even put that kind of time into an anonymous photograph. But knowing the, the climate of the, this airport and what we were hearing about, nobody wants to talk about anything, and they told us to shut up and all of that. I thought, well, I'm not surprised it's anonymous. Let's just see what we got. And it, the more that came out, the more interesting it became. And then the witness came, and I walked away from it. You know, over 48 hours straight later, I think it's good. Uh, I think if it's a fake, uh, it's probably the most detailed, comprehensive fake that I've ever seen. And I don't, I don't see someone going through that level of work to make something like that up just to see how far it'll go. It, it, it there, there's parts that just strain the credibility of calling something a hoax. Well, I have a question, too, about the smiley face thing, which is if there were some... I mean, I guess you would think that that would be a part of a disinformation campaign, right? So you guys go public with this, and then some reporter, as if they report and actually do any investigative stuff, maybe they're tipped off to it, let's say that, uh, <laughs> finds the smiley face, and they go, ah, ha, ha, this was hoax, joke's on you, you guys suck at what you do. Um... All of that would be uh, superfluous at this point, wouldn't it? Because wouldn't any sort of 
government military disinfo entity uh, know that, like, within 48 hours of a news cycle, no one's going to be talking about O'Hare? Mm. That's a good point. I don't, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, I mean, certainly they weren't not talking about it 48 hours later. It went on for quite a, quite a, a number of weeks that they were talking about it. And uh, and it was all over TV there for a while as well. So I don't know. I, I don't say that that was particularly the reason. I know that other parties thought that 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 could be the the, the object behind it. I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sold that that's what it is. I think if we have said and I and I did say that we that it was highly compelling, that it most likely was uh, an actual photo from that day showing the object where it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that wasn't just based on the photograph, but again, that was based on the witness telling me where it was to their point of view, and it was where it should have been from where I have it pegged. So uh, there's two things there for that. Um, I mean, I always reserve the right to be wrong, but too much going in that direction for me. But then you have this discrepancy of it's over gate C17. So I don't know what to make of that either. You know, a lot of people saw it there. Did it move? Did it? Did it, uh, the one thing that I was told by the witness was that it was very hard to see. It wasn't like, oh my God, it's this obvious thing. It did have a subtlety to it that that the way she related it to me was, it, you could just imagine if you were above this thing that it would almost be invisible. Hmm. That it was only visible by its darkened bottom, which was probably reflecting the ground somewhere. Or the the field, or whatever she was seeing as a gnats all over the bottom was making it visible. It was she said it had a definite camouflage quality to it. Hmm. So it, I think it's a really interesting case that hasn't been really studied that that well, except for Narcap. And I think that the work they did on it is amazing. I mean, that's that's how it ought to be done. So uh, like like I told uh, Dr. Haynes, you know, I'm, I was just right place, right time for that, and I'm really proud that that they thought enough of what I did to, to mention me in, in it. Yeah, and that was really nice of them. In the end, I, I just I, there's not enough I can say about the picture. I can't stand behind it 110% and say this is it. it. It's just it's another anomalous thing. Was it tampered with? I don't know. I mean, that seems to, seemed to have been a pervasive thought at one time, but the more I look at it, the more I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So I really don't know. I don't know. It's a very strange sighting to me. So that's it. I mean, there's really not a whole lot more to tell other than that, because after that came a set of four photographs that were taken near uh, the LaSalle nuclear plant in the same general vicinity, I suppose, of an object that looks like what you might expect the O'Hare object to look like in daylight. And they were really good pictures. And uh, again, every reason to believe that they were real. They again came from a source that didn't want to be identified, but Again, we, we, we kind of know who that is, and uh, uh, it was an incredible set of four in which uh, you see a disc, a smooth, not uh, sharp-edged disc, but a, again, like that rounded, smooth disc that's going from left to right to the shooter, shot one to the left, shot two, almost dead in front, shot three to the right, and shot four, and again, this is how far is someone willing to go? Shot four, you couldn't hardly, you didn't see it at all. To look at it at first blush, you're like, it's gone. Why would they give me this picture? It's gone. Well, there was only four shots taken 
uh, before it was gone from view, the last shot, all you see is a sliver of it between the branches of a tree. <laughs> hmm. In other words, the tree is in the foreground, and you can just barely see this curved piece sticking out from a very undescriptive part of this tree. Mm-hmm. So again, how far is someone willing to go? The reason I give those shots so much credit is that that last shot, number four, sucked. And you know what? If you or I were out taking photographs of something like that passing in front of us, chances are more than a few of them would suck. (laughs) And that last one sucked. But they kept shooting because maybe it's going to come out from behind the tree. Maybe it's going to pass you know, this way. Maybe it's coming towards us. Mm -hmm. They just kept shooting every time the camera would reset its it's shoot mode. They took a shot, and I, I find them really compelling too. So, I have a, uh, a golf breeze question for you, slash Dorothy Izot. Uh, when he was just des- describing the, um, w- was it film or, well, it certainly it wasn't digital camera anyway. The uh, the images of the UFO that had the trails all over. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what what he actually said. It, yeah, had but essentially had the separated. Um, trail the shutter state. Is that, is that a Dorothy Izot type no, footage? No, uh, no, that was like a still shot that they went to take, and basically her shutter stuck. And when the film is being exposed to a black sky, and you've got a lighted object, as that object moves, it's going to leave a trail on the film, basically showing if it's flashing, it's going to show like I'll see if I can dig up a picture to put on the message board. But if you went out on your deck and you took, you looked up at the sky and you saw a jetliner going into LaGuardia and you set your camera up with a 20 second shutter speed where that shutter stays open for 20 seconds. As that plane crossed, what you would see would be uh, a single white stripe, Mm -hmm. which would be the landing light. And you would see what looks like thin red lines with a red ball and thin red line, red ball, thin red line, red ball, like a pearls on a chain. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the strobe clicking off, clicking off, clicking off, but always having that dim. That's what she essentially got from this unidentified. She got it moving uh, around the sky. Uh, she was probably hand-holding her camera. Typically, when you do a long exposure like I'm talking about with your airplane, you're going to have that on a tripod. If you don't have that on a tripod, everywhere you move with the camera it's going to be a smear or a line or whatever. So for something like Dorothy, Izot, uh, you're talking about a single frame of consistently moving film, which, okay, let's say you, you make the argument that uh, that one frame, she stops the camera, and that frame is exposed, and then she moves the camera all around, and then she goes back and turns it on again. The problem with that is, is you would never be able to line up the previous frame, to the splooch frame, to the after frame. It's like when you watch these films, you're watching the film and it's bam, and you barely notice it until you stop on that one frame and it looks like haywire lights, you know. Mm -hmm. To be able to line up that before and after shot is just, to me, is an impossibility. I I couldn't even do that. Uh, What Rich was saying was that essentially when you're looking at the Gulf Breeze thing, it was strobing, and every strobe was a different color, which is ridiculous. Hmm. Um, and you can see the strobe as a line with different segments of color touching together. 
as it works its way up the rope or around the rope or wherever this thing is going, this light line. And that's how you can determine the strobes were, you know, so far apart and they were changing colors. And here's the pattern of the color, if there is one. So what does that say to and you? That that's some weird shit. <laughs> I mean, what would be um, the point of a uh, technology like that? Guess is as good as mine. Propulsion, something to add to the weirdness, something to, again, justify itself as real, to justify itself as not us, to who knows. I mean, people, that's something people ask me all the time in emails is, why do UFOs have lights on them? You know, if, if they were truly here and didn't want us to know about them, wouldn't they just be black and you wouldn't see anything? And some are, but some are lighted. And my answer to that is it could be anything from propulsion to a, a field around whatever it is that keeps it in the air or something really cool we don't even know about. So who's to say? I think that the Gulf Breeze stuff, I think there's genuine weirdness there of some sort. Could it be military? Anything could be, but there's certainly a lot of very strange stuff there that if we've got technology like that, you know, I'd sure like to put that in an airplane and make a billion dollars, you know, right. something can hang in the air and not move and zip away in a 60th of a second to a, a thin line exiting the video frame. I'd like to, I'd like to know what that is. I mean, who's to say what any of it is, but, uh, what reason would the lights change color? I mean, I don't know. Uh, that's a, that's a great question. I have, I don't have any idea. Okay. <laughs> I mean, really? Um, well, we got about uh, 15 minutes here to play with. Okay. Is there anything you want to uh, cover? Um, Did you want to talk about that primetime special? Your silence tells me no. <laughs> well, I know you wanted to before. I think, you know what, you know what sort of killed it for me was when you told me um, that, oh, right. ABC is doing that show V in a couple of weeks, and this is basically just a lead into that. You know, if I had known that before watching the show, I probably wouldn't have watched it because then it's like, well, all right, I see what they're doing. They feel like they've got to have this UFO show to get public interest, and of yeah. course, it's going to be a hackneyed piece of crap ending in sleep paralysis. <laughs> all right. The, right. the weather balloon response for alien abductions. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Yeah. Well, I thought what was more interesting last night was Larry King, uh, to oh, which they nice. had. Uh, yeah, well, it was good. Uh, Mr. Shostak uh, yeah. from SETI. Mr. Nick uh, Pope. Ah, uh, right. Uh, of, uh, of our uh, uh, tipsy late night X <laughs> conference uh, discussion. And, oh, God, Out of the Blue director? Oh, Jamie Foxx, yeah. James Foxx. Um, sorry about that, James. We're all on there. And believe it or not, Chef Shostak said he thinks UFOs are worthy of study. Huh. <laughs> Imagine what, that. What? <laughs> right, right. He says, I'm not saying they're not worthy of study. It's worthy of study. I just don't necessarily believe it's extraterrestrial aliens. Well, we agree. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. You know, I couldn't believe that he actually said that, but I just watched it a few minutes ago while eating supper, and sure enough, he says that in over top of, you know, other people talking, but he said that, uh, or at least that's what I thought I heard, is that he feels it's worthy of study. Hmm. He's just not, where's the evidence that it's extraterrestrial? Where's the evidence that this is, you know, this? And, um... 
Well, uh, and it, they all, it's such a you know. false argument. It's it's not that. It's it's proving, as NARCAP tries to do, or illustrating at least, in, in as far as you can prove something, that there is an anomalous phenomenon going on, that there is an unidentified phenomenon. It's not identifying it as extraterrestrial or something like that. Yeah. It's just that it yeah. ain't us, and so what is it? Right. It's well, accounted I'm, for, and it's winking at us. <laughs> hello. <laughs> well, I mean, that was Larry King's kind of point that, uh, okay, so what are they doing? You know, he, keep, you know, he says, uh, well, they're flying around, and they're just, what are they doing? They're flying around. You know, what are they doing? <laughs> of course, he asks this to Nick, and Nick's like, well, uh, that's that's anybody's guess, you know. Uh, uh, right, got to go. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that... Uh, that, that James Fox said, you know, there's all of these government documents and there's all of these, you know, unambiguous reports from airplane pilots to military pilots to civilians to, you know, when are we going to wake up and say, okay, there's something going on that needs further study? And when, you, when are you going to admit that, Seth Shostak? And <laughs> Seth says, it should be studied, but I'm not sold. Where is the evidence that this is this? And where is the evidence that this is that? And James Fox even said, well, I'm not even sold on that either. But clearly there's something going on. And I don't think that they disagreed on that much. I mean, it was actually, I, for a very short end segment, I thought it was pretty good. Hmm. I mean, I thought, you know, all the parties pretty much, you know, had something decent to say. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, I mean, people know how I feel about SETI. I think it's a waste of time, but who the hell am I? I mean, that's just my opinion. Hmm. Um, uh, and and actually, James Fox said, I don't see anything wrong with SETI, uh, but, you know, sometimes what you're looking for is right underneath your nose, which says he kind of thinks it might be extraterrestrial. Hmm. <laughs> you know, but yet he's not sold on that. But, you know, they're always, it always keeps going back to that. It, it always will, probably. I thought everybody did fairly well on that show. And uh, to me, that that made my night after the train wreck that was the ABC show. <laughs> well, good. So so that that was it. I kind of feel uh, bad about the um, that they had Romanek on before my UFO magazine article comes out destroying him. Because I feel like just by seeing him and seeing his footage that... Uh, it's self-explanatory. <laughs> the article is superfluous. Wow. I guess here's the part I want to talk about. I mean, let's let's forget about all the rants and raves and stuff that we could do about. Could you quit cocking a gun and putting it to your head while I'm talking? Uh, forget about all the rants and raves and stuff like that, that that you would expect. Here's my concern. It's that ABC dropped the ball with, with Romanek. And I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but essentially they had their, that's right, Jeff, it's your favorite new saying, their weather balloon theory of alien abduction, which is, it's all sleep paralysis. They had that, that they obviously knew they wanted to be the ending of their story, which is their show. And so everything in the show had to conform to that. In order for everything in the show to conform to that, you have to keep Stan Romanek an open question. You can't completely expose him as a fraud. You can have the host say, oh, I'm skeptical of you. But ultimately, you have to leave the question open. And so they did. They had his alien video. They had his UFO videos. And they did nothing with it. They didn't analyze them. They didn't bring them to a special effects expert and all of that. And why not? Why would you not do that if you're an investigative journalist show? Well... 
You wouldn't do that again, because that's not the story they wanted to tell. The story they wanted to tell is abductions are all sleep paralysis. And I think it's um, time we stop putting up with that. I don't know how we uh, we go about that, whether you find out about a special ahead of time and write to them and say, look, we're not going to put up with this, whether you demand they put on Jeff and Jeremy as guests and not uh, the Robinex of the world. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. But something has to be done. They gave as much camera time as they could as, as far as the normal, uh, quote-unquote, normal abductees are concerned um, to... The people who uh, you're less likely to believe than the ones who sounded really articulate and really, you know, sharply dressed, presented themselves well and all of that. And that's, again, this is all planned stuff. And it's just really, uh, I don't know, more than a sad comment, more than lazy journalism. It's a setup. This is not, you know, this is an international show. It's supposed to be an investigative show. And they didn't do the one basic thing that any one of us would have done, any one of us putting the show together would have had that footage analyzed. Uh, And they didn't do it because they wanted to tell a story, and that's unacceptable. How do we let them know that's unacceptable? I don't know. Don't watch V? (laughs) Well, first, I'll explain my reasoning for putting a prop Beretta 92F up to my skull while Jeremy began talking about this, is that there's a bigger question. And that is that when any scientist slash psychologist says that sleep paralysis is the answer, then the first question back out of a reporter's mouth should be, how do you explain the parts where they're awake? Right. How do you explain multiple sightings? How do you explain people being in the presence of others and seeing strange things in the presence of this person? How does all that equate to a sleep problem? Isn't that the most obvious question? Fuck the footage. I mean, sorry to say, screw the footage. Isn't the most pertinent question, why are there multiple sightings of weird things? Why are people taken together? Why? Well, I think they've uh, identified two problems. Uh One problem is with and how you treat this topic. The other problem, I guess my problem, is actually more a problem with media in general in, in that you can call yourself an investigative journalist and have your show be an investigation show, and yet that's not how the show is set up. The show is set up to tell a story that has been predetermined, and that's a function of uh, the media being awful for decades now. So I guess that's sort of my gripe, I guess. Uh, and yours is, yeah, is 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 valid. Uh, you know, if you're going to go with, well, we've got this this story yeah i mean why not well i mean it's all part of the same thing isn't it of course they're not going to investigate that because that's the answer they want to give but yes go ahead. here here's what i'm going to say to you uh on the show and 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 here's here's what i want to do here's what i would propose let's between the time that we record this and the time that it airs focus on getting miss juju <laughs> to come on this show yeah all right how about that? She was the How about we see... primetime special for those Yes. Guys. Yes. Let's get her... Let's write her a letter, and let's say... Uh, you know, I mean, she's got to be somewhat accessible, right? I mean, so let's write her a letter and say, you know, we would like to have you on our show to discuss this. We're not going to attack you. We're not going to attack the way that your show is presented. We want to talk to you about the show itself. 
and and let's see if she wants to come on and talk and we can ask her these things like why wouldn't something because like, i'll tell you something I, I've spoken to a lot of reporters that I've had issues with what they've said on the air, what they presented. And, and, and more often than not, I get a, I wasn't given enough time. B I didn't have final edit. C I thought something completely different when walking away from this than what my show reflected. Hmm. I've heard, I'd be curious to see what her stance would be. I've heard a lot of that from Burns about UFO hunters. Um, yes. And I've, when I talked to a reporter in college, the answer I got was, uh, of course, this was you know in the 90s, um, so it was a while ago, but the answer I got was about um, budgeting, essentially. It's like we, we have a dwindling amount of dollars, and we have to attract advertisers. Right. And I think all of that has morphed into now. I, I really, I mean, you know, it's always easy to look back on the good old days of reporting, but Heck, I even almost have to go back before my lifetime to find Walter Cronkite, you know. But it really has, if you look at it, morphed into not just advertisement bucks, but, I mean, how do you get people to stay? Everything has to be visceral, it has to be pressing, and it has to be depressing. You know, it's got to be, like, outrageous, or the sad, or it's got to tug at your heartstrings, and it's got to tell a story. Otherwise, you won't stick around for the news, apparently. And so but that's what's but, become the news. Yeah, but don't people love a mystery? I mean, how great would it be to have a show where you expound on all of these very strange things that really the best hardened skeptic doesn't really have an answer for? I mean, how about let's focus on some things that, that really add up to something uh, and, and leave that on the table and say, you know, when a scientist sits back and goes, well, let me tell you about Bentwaters, it was a lighthouse. Why isn't it then put forth that, you know, as it was tried, as was tried to be done with the Larry King show, when Magaha says to uh, Penniston, well, what you saw was a lighthouse, and I, you know, I've talked to other people who were there, and they didn't see what you saw, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, how about we take some smarmy jackass like that and and ask him, how do you then explain the way the man touched it? How about what he copied down as far as symbols that he saw on the craft? How about that you claim that a satellite went down, but satellites go down, they don't go back up in the air, and they don't exhibit ridiculous flight characteristics if they leave the area. How about we put that in front of that person and make them answer the question? That's not been done. I mean, all that does is erupt into an argument on Larry King where Larry has to go, all right, all right, let's calm it down. Let's sit down in a rational way and and ask these questions. And, and, have, and to me, that would be damn good TV. Let's have someone <laughs> on a set who, when, like, for instance, during this primetime special, Susan Clancy, who's supposed to be the, the catch-all abduction researcher who says it's all sleep paralysis, uh, says... Well, what these people are reporting are little green men, greenish skin with <laughs> giant eyes and blah, blah, blah. Can we just have someone on the set who knows that that's not true? <laughs> right, right. Even if to correct her, even if to go, Psst, we yeah. got to do take two. You meant gray people or something. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Because my impression is that she doesn't know what she's talking about at that point. Maybe it was just a little slip up. And yeah. Nobody knew to catch it. I don't know. Yeah, but you know what? 
doesn't matter because the people claiming the experience or reporting the experience are the ones that are in question here, not the psychologists trying to explain it. So guess what now public opinion is going to think? That people are seeing little green men. Right. You see how that works? I mean, that's why it's Except not questioned. I think the image of the gray has been so ingrained in people that, that they would laugh that off at this point. Or be like, oh, well, maybe. what you're talking maybe. about. Who knows? Maybe. I mean, when you talk about the the image of the alien, you know, I mean, I go to I go to Ocean City, Maryland, quite often. I can tell you that the shirts that you see on the boardwalk and every keychain, those little green men are green. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, when you talk about ratings and you talk about selling advertisements, I think it'd be a hell of a a show to really do a, a Peter Jennings thing. What was that? Two hours, but instead, do it right. Do it fairly. Do it completely balanced and have there be a very big question mark at the end. Why do we have to resolve this to sleep paralysis or swamp gas or whatever? Well, I think I have a... Why can't we leave it open-ended? How about this for a clue? The gal Mm -hmm. from SETI who was on that primetime, not the primetime, on the uh, Peter Jennings special, who was debunking UFOs, was doing so because she saw the moon when she was in a plane and, and mistook it for... A UFO for a little bit, and then right. realized it was the moon. Susan Clancy has had sleep paralysis. I think, like, if you have an intellectual person having a really dumb moment, maybe it becomes their neurotic obsession to then debunk all the other stuff that that's associated with it. Sort of as almost as a an unconscious means to uh, scold themselves for being idiots. That one for that one brief moment, you know, maybe it is just some personal psychological almost a vendetta thing that they're doing. Because why else would you spend your time... If I worked at SETI and I was, uh, you know, looking for whatever on those telescopes, that's what I would do. I wouldn't go on Larry King and debunk UFOs and all that sort of stuff. It just wouldn't... I don't think it would dawn on me to care enough about the subject. You only care enough about the subject when you screwed up and thought you saw one (laughs) and it was the moon (laughs) and you're somebody you should know better. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the point they're trying to get across there is that I'm a highly trained scientist and I made a mistake. So what's the likelihood of some, uh, uh, you know, goofy guy in Maryland or New York making that mistake, too? I guess they're showing just how fallible human memory and perception can be. Uh, and I get that part of it. But, uh, you know, and, and I see where you're coming from with the whole thing, too. But uh, let's let's. Uh, Let's 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 give the quote unquote devil its due here. Uh, Larry King is actually fairly good. I mean, I could put all of that up against the ABC thing for my money. I, I, just to hammer my my point home one more time, the more you think about this, Susan Clancy actually wrote a book about abductions, so she bothered to study abductees. She bothered. I, I assume I haven't read the book, but I assume she hypnotized them. She's this Harvard professor, right? One assumes that she. I mean, she has actually worked with them, and so what else do you do when you work with them? Uh, so, all right, so she goes through the motions, she does all this stuff. Why would she? Why would, of any psychologist or researcher in an academia, why would she care? Why would she be like, hmm, that abduction thing, interesting, when no one else is? Now, I okay, I guess you've got John Mack taking it seriously, and maybe she's sort of counterbalancing that, but i, I got to think, again, it, it comes down to, well, gee, I had sleep paralysis that one time, and that felt like there were people outside of myself in my, my house, Therefore, everyone must be feeling that who claims to be an abductee. I got to prove that. I got to think that that's unconsciously, at least, 
the angle that happens. Because, like you said, there's no way you can you can boil it all down to the one thing that doesn't take into account multiple witnesses, being awake, <laughs> period. I think for someone like her, it may be as simple as, well, this, this is a... I'm trying to think of how to not make this a long-winded answer, but... Uh, fuck it. Um, (laughs) I I think for people like her, it comes down to that the psychological community would like to have the be-all, end-all explanation for this. And I think to try and do that is is, is, uh, to write a book, to to do this study, and to come out with that answer is essentially... Uh, kind of like springboarding. I mean, if she had not written that book and had not made those studies, would she be on ABC News for anything? Probably not. So I think it's. I think for some, it's a, it's an effort to elevate one's career, and I think that that uh, that kind of mentality works both ways. I think there are people in the UFO field who say and do things that are completely disingenuous, and and therefore advance their own career just by being sensationalistic and all that. And I think that there's also a certain portion of people, and I think, you know, Joe Nickel comes to mind, and I think Magaha comes to mind, uh, and others, uh, I guess Bill Nye to a lesser degree, because I just find him amusing. And I, and I wrote an article a while back where I said, you know, one of the things that skeptics always say about experiencers is that they'd really like to see some kind of hardcore across-the-board psychological exam be applied to people like us. And my response to that is I would like to see an across-the-board psychological exam applied to those who feel the need to debunk it, who really feel that they're the ones to pick up the reins and say, I'm the one that's going to explain this to everyone. Like, what's the psychological makeup of one of those fundamentalist skeptics? Uh, That's what I'd be curious to know. Because where does that come from? And I think where that comes from is I think there's a, 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 an extensive amount of ego involved in saying, and coming onto a show and I'm the debunker and you're explaining your sighting of this green rotating object with your mom. And I'm able to explain it as something completely mundane. And I think there's a certain amount of elitism, uh, intellectual elitism, that uh, gets stroked in that kind of thing where the other experiencers or UFO support people will say, oh, that guy's full of crap and blah, blah, blah. But by and large, a significant amount of the community is going to go, oh, bravo, bravo, bravo. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from as well. So uh, what's the psychological makeup of a fundamentalist debunker? (laughs) Where does that come from? Elevate the career, gain notoriety, gain popularity, because of this, and probably some sort of intellectual elitism of some sort is probably, for my money, is where that lies. You could be right, young Jeffrey. You could be very, very right. Yeah. Very right indeed. Probably not, but that's my (laughs) opinion. Anyway, so Hmm. there it is. So let's not forget to try to get Juju on the show. Yeah, yeah, I'll... uh, as soon as we log out tonight, I will start trying to locate her and send an email. I mean, who knows if she can even go on a, a show like ours to talk about this. Maybe there's some kind of contractual problems with that, but I don't. I doubt it. And we'll see if she bites. Oh, she bites. 
<laughs> Not hard, I hope. What else we got, Jeef? Uh, let's see. Who's on the show next week? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> That's great. Why do we? That's great. Do you? Why would you ask such a question when you know that we? Because I thought we, I thought we had one in the can. <laughs> no, this is the one. This in the can. Is, let me let me tell you what, folks. This is cutting edge radio. <laughs> you want to? In fact, I'd call this hanging hanging by the skin on your teeth radio. <laughs> uh, let me tell you what you know. This show. <laughs> This show can grab guests by the throat and say, no, this week, we need you this week. (laughs) Maybe I'll Uh, write to Nori. (laughs) Have him apologize to me. Oh, Jerry. (laughs) Could it have been Yeah, I'm I'm thinking no. Do we have anything else we wanted to cover in this? I I can't think of anything else. I, I think that's the show for this week, folks. Yeah. I think we done good. Oh, we've done all right. Well, I think I think Haynes did most of the work, frankly. Well, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I, I'll be psyched to have him on to talk about um, his CE five book. I will. Yes. Go grab that and, and rip through that. I, I actually can't wait to read that now. It sounds like a very uh, exciting, informative tome. I actually have it on hold at Barnes and Noble. I just couldn't uh, drag myself out into the rain today to go get it, okay. but I will go tomorrow to pick it up uh, and many thanks to uh, dr richard haynes for coming on our show and and being frank and open and honest about everything you know that we that we got into i know that some of the stuff we probably asked wasn't the normal for him so many thanks to him for coming on and putting up with us i do have one little thing to throw out there on the 25th of august uh there's a video game that i've been talking about for the nintendo wii called cursed mountain wherein I don't know. Someone goes looking for his lost brother on this abandoned Tibetan uh, ancient city. And in order to fight the bad guys, the evil spirits, he has to do these hand gestures. So with your little Wii remote, you have to make the dude on screen uh, do these ancient Buddhist hand gestures to ward off the demons. And when I read the description of this, I, I talked about it on our forum because it sounds strikingly like what has happened with me (laughs) Uh, back in the day, back when I was having these sort of vivid dreams of being, you know, these recurring, I mean, they were recurring dreams, they they were recurring recurring settings and people, they weren't recurring same exact thing happening in the dreams, but of being shown around what I interpreted as a dojo in hell, and doing these hand gestures as they're touring me around, these Asian people are touring me around and doing these hand gestures that this meditation energy has me do sometimes to keep me, I don't know, to preserve me in some way, to keep me safe. Um, And I don't know what that means beyond just what I just said. All I know is it sounds like a parallel to a video game that is coming out August 25th. So I'll be back and let you know if it's the same things that I've been doing or not. I have a question about that. And and here's something else that I'm glad that you brought up a last minute thought because I have one of my own. Uh, two actually. Number one, when you uh, when you meditate and you move like this, and you've often, I mean, you've always said to me, "I'm not doing this." I have a question about the sensation of not doing something and having your body move. 
a couple nights ago, I was laying in bed, or I'm sorry, wasn't even in bed. I was I was in the chair that you really like to break wind on whenever you come over. Um, I was sitting in that chair. If you tell a and, lie long uh, enough, the audience is going to believe it. I have audio. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> and uh, and I was uh, I had uh, I, I had a really rough day at work, and and occasionally my right arm because I have it on a mouse literally for nine to 12 hours a day. Um, occasionally my arm will jerk, <laughs> uh, involuntarily. And, um, uh, I mean, literally as if, uh, I, I feel the muscles move. I feel them seize and I see my arm move, but clearly I'm not doing it. It's almost like, you know, when I guess you could attribute it to like your eyelid vibrates sometimes and it's this little spasm. Does it feel almost, not spasm-like, but does it have that same kind of quality to you when you move or do these movements? Is it that kind of thing where if your eyes were shut, you wouldn't exactly know what your hands were doing? If my eyes were shut, I wouldn't know what my hands were doing? What do you mean? Would you... I mean, I often do this stuff. It often shuts my eyes and then does this stuff, so I don't know. I, I, well, guess, I guess what I'm asking is, it does. How does it? How, what is the sensation of your arms moving, and yet the the typical feeling of raising your arm is not there? Well, you ever, is it there? No. You ever have like maybe your your toes or a muscle or something seize up, almost like a Charlie horse or something, or uh, or if if you get dehydrated and you can feel like your legs starting to twist up and you have to like get up and stomp it out. I don't know if anyone's ever had those types of sensations. It's uh-huh. not the, the pain of the actual twisting, but right. the sensation just before that of the thing actually moving. Okay. It so, it's, so it does feel st- strange in comparison to normal movement. Yeah, it definitely doesn't. There, the thing that's missing is you can feel that the, your intention of moving is missing. <laughs> you said urine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did uh, did um, the first time that, that happened ever? Did that frighten you? Yeah. Well, when it when it happened, it frightened me. Um, it felt completely natural as it was going on. But but did you jerk out of it and go, "What the fuck"? I mean, did you? No, no, not immediately. I just went with it because it, it would actually. It took me a minute to feel for thought to re-enter because the first time it happened it was like this moment of nothingness and then this energy and oh. so it took it really took a while to sort of come back to my senses or whatever but when but when I did yeah I mean just thinking about it I thought what what the hell is this is this a possession but I'm right. thinking it as it's happening as my sort of head is rotating like an exercise um oh. and realizing that I, the thought isn't matching the sensation I mean it feels completely okay it's just thought gets in the way, and you think, well, this can't be right, because this isn't what oh. has happened for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. And I have jerked out of it for, you know, over the years for that reason, when it starts to feel too possessive, bizarre, something. And the other question I had is that, uh, and I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show or not, So, but either way, I have a question about it. Uh, and it's one I want to throw out to listeners uh, as well. Uh, a while back, I told you about uh, binaural beats and I actually gave you, I don't know, two or three of them to 
put headsets on. You had your own really bizarre reaction to those. I'm actively looking for someone right now who has worked uh, scientifically in binaural beats. Uh, And for those people who don't know what it is, it's a tone in one ear and another tone of a different frequency in the other. And when you listen to them separately, they are solid tones. When you put headphones on uh, each ear and they're separated into a right and left channel, you get a sound, which is your brain actually doing that. It's not the audio that's coming out of it. I had downloaded these a really long time ago, probably close to a year ago. They were on my iPod and I was bored as hell on a Sunday afternoon some weeks ago and I put them on and I I put one on that I actually sent to Jeremy called uh, Chakra. Uh, of all things, which I I have absolutely no knowledge uh, or or real belief in. But I put it on my head, and I was listening to it. And uh, throughout the entire thing, the the tones uh, change in pitch, but they do not change or they do not add anything in them. Uh, There's no static. There's no voices or music or anything like that. It's strictly this very even tone that can rise and lower in pitch. During the time that I had them on, which was probably about no more than 15 to 20 minutes, I began to hear very strange music, which I have heard in some encounter experiences, uh, some just before encounter experiences that are, it seems, rather distant, high-pitched. I don't know if I want to say flute-ish, but sort of... Tinkly, like a toy piano? Kind of. Kind of, but more sustained than a toy piano. Longer notes, I should say. Trailing notes. Uh, And I also heard what sounded like the voice, which is that distant CB radio with a bit of, uh, well, people who play guitar or listen to or or into audio stuff will know why I mean when I say an octave divider type of sound where you've got a really high voice and a really low voice in unison along with a lot of static kind of added. And I heard that voice very faintly, but I did hear it. And I heard, I didn't hear words, but I just heard, you know, that kind of almost gibberish type of sound. Uh, And I found that when I opened my eyes and I said, what is that? I, I began to try and listen for it. I couldn't hear it. Excuse me. It almost was if when I was in that, meditative state or, or that staring state of just listening to the tone. Boo, 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 boo. That was when I heard it in peripheral audio. And I took them off because, frankly, the tone, somehow, after a certain point of hearing the strange music, the voice, other voices, what sounded like a party upstairs, <laughs> um, you know, lots of people, um, I began to hear not just the right and left tone reverberating in my skull, but actually hearing a separate tone that sounded like it was right in the middle of my forehead, which was like a... And once that happened... That would be a chakra, Jeff. Well, <laughs> once I heard that, I took them off. And uh, and if anybody out there downloads a binaural beat, and maybe I'll put a link up on the, the message board, watch what happens when you take the headphones off. <laughs> Which will really freak you out because every bit of sound in the room, such as a ceiling fan or an air conditioner, will sound like this. (laughs) 
which is real weird. <laughs> and it only lasts for about five minutes, but that'll freak you right the hell out. Um, so I'm curious for listeners, what do they think of binaural beats? Because we're going to try and get somebody on the show to talk about this stuff. Uh, I, found, I found it really interesting, albeit a little bit scary. I, I certainly wouldn't be afraid to do it again. I, I have done it again since then, and I'm, I'm frequently interrupted by the dog or my son. So uh, <laughs> the dog jumps up on the bed in the middle of this, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll pet you for a while. Um, so, you know, I need time to myself to really get into it, but I'd like to go the full half hour and see what happens. But, Jeremy, you you did them, and what happened? Uh, well, I did one of them. I did the chakras yeah. one. I didn't do the other one you sent me yet still for no reason. Okay. Well, I did it with the... Uh, the meditation energy or whatever the hell it is going Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it just went crazy it just uh had a field day with it and sort of some of the stuff that i've told you about where the room becomes sort of thick with i don't even know energy for lack of a better term thick with lights blacks whites sometimes reds to -hmm. the extent that you can uh wave your hand in front of your face and it will leave a streak uh Mm -hmm. in front of your eyes that happened I did hear, I did it twice. The second time I did it as I was like conking out and I did it with crappy headphones, hmm. which I shouldn't have done with the fan on, which probably, I feel like I probably shouldn't have done. I feel like I had too much blocking out the actual tones, but that right. time I did hear um, music faintly, which sounded like, like, like a toy piano or something like an, almost an out of tune kids piano or something. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, when you take them off, it's like it, real sounds are screwed up for a little bit, which is kind of, fun. yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't remember, so- I don't remember the first time I don't remember what I do. I just remember, um, the meditation energy going haywire and, um, but I don't remember all of what happened uh, other than the thickness of the room. I don't remember. Hmm. Okay. You? I don't remember exactly what you told me. I know it. I know it. You said that the meditation thing just really yeah. kind of freaked at it new thing uh, going on now which is like it, it this isn't even when i'm i mean i haven't done this activated this thing on my own in i don't know weeks i guess but now like if i shut my eyes and this has happened before but now it's happening often <laughs> so that's like noticeable and i wonder where it's going if i shut my eyes uh it will be bright white and um to the extent that i think there's got to be someone shining a light in the room, and I'll open my eyes, and it'll be dark. Uh, my my windows don't go out to a road, so but for some reason in my head, I'm like, well, that's just that's got to be streetcars, which is just preposterous. <laughs> and then I'll open uh-huh. my eyes, and of course, duh, there's nothing there, and this just constantly happens. And huh. it's not happening. Oh, eleven, eleven. Look at that. <laughs> uh, so anyway, <laughs> and that happens too. Um, right. so I don't know, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that, if that's evolving into something, I just know that it's happening a lot now where huh. you know, I don't even have to be sleeping. I can just be lying there, sitting there, whatever, and shut my eyes for a minute. And suddenly a bright white light goes on and now I can't sleep or rest. I've got to like open my eyes. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. But it's in my head. <laughs> oh, uh, and here's something else I forgot to mention about the, the binaural stuff is that I went online. Because I was really curious, did other people hear voices and strange music and all that kind of stuff? And in fact, yes, they do. Uh, But I found one person online who said that uh, what really kind of freaked them out about it the first time was that when they opened their eyes after the binaurals were done and the 
you know, the half an hour was up or whatever, however long the, 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 the tones went on. Um, when they blinked, much like if you look into a bright light, you get that afterburn in your retina. They saw images. They saw an image of, uh, well, one guy said fractals. One guy said he saw an image of uh, uh, like a lotus flower shape, all of which I found really It hasn't happened to me, but that's what say, a lot of people I, I think I see that stuff all the time. I think I've always seen that stuff all the time. Um, and it's just not something that ever caught my fancy. You know what huh. I mean? Like it, it, it's above... I guess it's above and beyond just shutting your eyes and seeing, you know, random crap burned into your retina or whatever, random lights. Um, but I don't know. Up until I actually saw that video of fractals and what huh. uh, and what was I'm like, I, I saw that. I'm like, yeah, oh, duh. I mean, I see that all the time. I guess it just didn't didn't add up. And I don't know. I don't know ultimately what the point of that is, unless it's just just another state that you can access. You know, like like any other. Uh, well. Arthur C. Clarke, isn't that who was the host of that? Was that Arthur C. Clarke? Yeah. You know, he said that, you know, not by his experience, but by what people have told him is that several psychoactive drugs will relay that same type of imagery, you know, which is probably where the tie-dye came from or uh, any of that psychedelic imagery is probably fractally based stuff. So... I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like I said, I saw the fractal that night, waking up and seeing the guy crawling out of it, and I just seeing that that whole special on what the fractals mean, where they came from, what they did and, uh, with them. It, it is it, that's an amazing thing. So you should check that out on our message board at the first crawl through one. <laughs> that will be well, interesting if that if that happens. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I, I have come. Cl- close at least i feel like i've come close just in the past few weeks um to something happening you know what i mean like i don't even i have no way to qualify that except that it's just a feeling of like opening something up that's legitimate that something could walk through if it wanted to you know i don't know if that's good or bad or even if it's true it's just it feels like whatever this thickness is that the room becomes is becoming uh-huh. something. It's like it's like it like well, it feels. Nice. I, I feel like it wants to sort of get to what it is supposed to be, and uh, and that'll be interesting if when that happens. If it's what I'm thinking, <laughs> maybe that's what you maybe that's what you've been waiting for as far as the next step or the next uh, the next event. So who knows? Yeah, um, or it could be full of shit. But one way or the other, we'll find out, and we'll bring it to you, <laughs> Paratopia. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, Jer. Oh, sorry. Well, the Jer. Well, the Jeff. It's been a fantastic episode. I've really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, once again, let's let's say thank you for to Doctor Haynes. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor Haynes. And we'll have him back on again real soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. And be sure to look up Dr. Haynes's work and NARCAP's work online at www.narcap.org. Once again, www.narcap.org. Please go visit them, support them. They're one of the good ones, as they say. Now enjoy some precious outtakes. Never record late at night, folks. You get the giggles. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I 
am doing well. How are you? Guess who's on the show tonight? Mm. Uh, Walter Starkey? <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody would have him on. Who? <laughs> Can we keep that? Welcome to my world. It's Jeff and Jeremy here. Jeremy, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Ridiculous. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Let's do this. Why come eat them and see them? Why come eat them and see them? Walter Starkey. (laughs) (laughs) No, who would have him on? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking great. I love you, man. (laughs) Okay. Three, two, one. Hey, Perrytopia, it's Jeff and Jeremy here with yet another. What, Jeremy? Great show? Dare I say great show? I'll say it. Exciting episode. Yes. Our guest tonight, Dr. Richard F. Haynes. Richard Haynes. Hmm. I wonder what his background is. Well, here is the read of the very long bio. Because we're, de- <laughs> we're not dealing with chicken feed here, folks. That's right. We have on the good people. We're the platinum this- standard, after all. <laughs> <laughs> you asshole! Sorry. <laughs> we had a plan, baby. <laughs> oh, sorry. One more time. <laughs> Can you please keep it together? All right, all right. Uh. <laughs> 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 Webcam, you will be my downfall. 